You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. I am so pleased to introduce our two speakers today. We have Ron Conway and Mike Naples. Ron is a legend in angel investing in the Valley. In fact, he has invested in over 500 startups in his career and 50 in this last year alone. And he has incredible stories to tell and great insights that he will share with us. Mike Maples is a younger and newer uh, angel investor, but uh, with an incredible track record. He was the founder of uh, Motive, is that correct? That's right. And uh, which he took from the early beginning in the startup phase all the way through selling it for $100 million and uh, then went off and became an angel investor. Well, actually, it's still public, but uh, it's still public? Yeah, I had an IPO. Yeah. Okay, so. so Great. Well, we're going to get some really great insights from these guys. And uh, I told them that if we have some disagreements, that would be fine. It's great to get different points of view. So um, my first question to you is, what actually is an angel investor? Who wants to take that one? Uh, someone who loves to take a lot of risk. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, it's an individual, hopefully, who has some industry expertise, who invests. 50 or 100K in raw startups. Um, the term got derived in the 30s when uh, people invested in uh, Hollywood movies uh, down in LA and they got the nickname Angels and that just carried its way on into, into high tech. Uh, but it's, it's individuals who invest in early, early stage companies. So why would I want someone to be an angel investor in my venture? Why would any of these folks in this room want to engage an angel investor in, in, their, in their startup? Um, well, I, I think there's real, really three or four main reasons. Uh, the first is just money, which is the obvious one. Uh, yeah, I think there's also uh, contacts. Uh, and, and Ron, in particular, I think, knows tons of people all throughout the industry. And I'm doing my best to keep up. Uh, uh, I think perspective, the, the good angels have had some type of accomplishment in business before, and so usually they've seen a lot of the near-death experiences that a startup will face. Uh, they know when it's time to be calm versus when it's time to have an incredible sense of urgency. Uh, and then I think the other, the other important thing is that the good angels will provide a broader range of uh, exit options. And so that's, that's a subtle point we may want to talk about some later, but uh, raising small amounts of money and keeping burn rates low uh, provides the entrepreneur with a wide variety of possible good outcomes. And so I think that's important as well. So, so let's imagine that someone in this room is starting some new venture and they're doing it in their dorm room and they want to get some angel funding to get you know, sort of a little bit of escape velocity. How would they pick someone? How, how do you know someone's a good angel investor? What, what are the things I should think about or they should think about? Well, mainly some, you know, an angel who will add value and an angel that you can get access to. Um, you know, I think the groups here have access to a lot of angels because you have forums like this. But what you want to do is get some inroad to an angel so that you can send some kind of an executive summary to them and get a meeting set up. Uh, and then hopefully get the angels to fund you and then introduce you to the VCs as your next step 
in, in maturing the company. So when someone comes to you with an idea, what are you looking for? What are, what are the key metrics? I'm sure you've got some sort of list that you go down, at least in your mind, as you're evaluating these opportunities. Um, yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's three or four things I look for, and I should, I should clarify, um, there's a slight difference between how Ron and I approach things. So, um, you know, my, my belief is that there's a new kind of angel emerging that really sits in the gap between angels and VCs. And so uh, Ron described an investing strategy of investing you know, say fifty to hundred thousand dollars in a company. Um, typically, the venture capitalists will want to fund a company in the multiple millions of dollars, right? Usually, north of five. And so, um, I look for entrepreneurs who want to raise more like a million dollars. And so, very often, um, I'll help by contributing something like five hundred thousand dollars. And then Ron and I and other angels will work together to fill out the rest of the round. And so, um, you know, I think that's. That's that's a key thing that I think entrepreneurs also need to look for is just how much money they need to raise to get to the next level. But to but to answer your question more directly, I guess a pet peeve of mine is that a lot of entrepreneurs approach me with just an idea, mm-hmm. and ideas are pretty cheap. And so you you know we're we're now in an era where the cost of experimentation is very low, and so if you come as an entrepreneur to an investor, and you haven't run a single experiment. Uh, haven't done anything to test the market viability of the product, um, it, it reflects a lack of conviction on the entrepreneur's part. And if, if an entrepreneur doesn't have enough conviction to really test their idea in a low-cost, low-burn, leverage-efficient way, why should they propose that I should be excited? And so the, you know, the one piece of advice that I would have, the one common mistake I think people make is that they want to have lunch and just talk about ideas. And, and, you know, heck, if I know if it's a good idea, I'm not a customer. And, you know, my opinion's irrelevant if I'm not going to pay for the product. Only customers matter in terms of evaluating whether it's a good idea. Now, it's interesting. You mentioned before that you often work together. Do angel investors tend to work in consortiums and, and each say, okay, I'll put in a little bit, you put in a little bit, and you essentially build a bigger pool that way? Yeah, the average angel round is a half a million to a million, let's say. So if I put in, my, my appetite is fifty to a hundred thousand, uh-huh. so the entrepreneur is raising a half a million. I, if I'm the lead angel, I'll go syndicate the rest of the half a million or a million. So we do know all the active angels that we think add value, and we invite them in once we decide we're going to invest. Yeah, I, I like to use the metaphor. How many people have ever seen the movie Ocean's Eleven? Uh, okay, so a lot of people. So it's a it's a current movie. So um, you know, in Ocean's Eleven, in order to rob the Bellagio Hotel, you had the guy that was the acrobat, you had the safe picker, and the guy that could blow up things, and 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 you know, the guy who could hatch the whole plan. And so, um, what I like to to say to an entrepreneur is that we want to find an Ocean's Eleven syndicate of angels. And so, for example, if we're if we're investing in a social networking company, you want people like Reed Hoffman. Uh, who's awesome at, at viral marketing and engineering. Uh, if you're investing in a targeted advertising company, uh, there might be people like, say, Rajiv Matwani, who, who are incredibly valuable from his experience at Google. And so, you know, the, the idea is to ask the entrepreneur, what would be your dream team of angels, uh, if you could pick any and wave a magic wand, and then, and, and then try to get that team excited about the, the project and come in on it together as an Ocean's Eleven team, and then we go off our separate ways and help the company. Well, so that's a great segue into the next question, which is, well, what do you do for the company? I mean, if I, 
if you end up investing in this new venture that this whole class we've all brought to you with this idea, what are you going to do for us? Well, uh, number one, write a check, which is crucial. <laughs> okay. And then, and then uh, find out what the needs of the company are, and it's always going to be people needs. So if the company needs biz dev help, then we would find someone to either go work full time in biz dev or someone to advise the company in biz dev. Um, if the company needs more engineering talent, then we'll introduce the company to engineering talent. So in the early stages, it's staffing up and getting the company such that it has a successful prototype, that it's testing in the marketplace, it is getting some metrics, and then you know, we'll go introduce the company to the VCs on Sand Hill Road if it's a capital-intensive company. If not, what's starting to happen now is the angels will do the next round of financing because uh, it doesn't cost a lot of company a, a lot of money to build a company today. Uh, you can do your angel round for a half a million to a million, and then do the next round for a couple of million. And if the if the product is taking off, you may not need to raise VC funding. I think you're probably talking a lot about Web 2.0 ventures that can for be started sure. as opposed to capital-intensive ventures where we've got to build a plant or have things manufactured. Right. right. Uh, um, and I, I guess the, the um, uh, just another observation, and when you're a startup, it's like you're a fast-moving car and you don't have time to stop. And you're going through a busy t traffic city, right? And so um, part of my job, I think, is just to help all the lights turn green at the right time. And you never know what that's going to be. You never know if that's biz dev. You never know if that's helping with recruiting. You, never, you just never really know. But you're always trying to, to work with the entrepreneur and to anticipate. And that's, that's why you want to have a broad-based Ocean's Eleven team, because if you, have the right, mm -hmm. if you have the right mix of people, there's always somebody who can help that light turn green at just the right time when the car is flying through the intersection at breakneck speed. And in, a, in an environment where speed is everything, the, the company that just has the one extra green light maybe gets the finish line just a little bit faster. That's the difference between winning and losing. I'm going to guess that there are really different levels of engagement that you have with different ventures, that some you're much more, you know, every day you're on the phone 20 times with the CEO, and other ones you kind of leave alone for a while. Maybe you could tell a little bit about even some stories or something that would help us understand, you know, what it would mean to actually have you involved in, in different type of ventures. Well, it depends on the entrepreneur. Uh, if it's an entrepreneur that does not have a lot of experience, then there's going to be a lot of front-end work. And I actually gauge that into whether or not I'm going to invest. Because if, you know, if you're an individual angel, uh, you can't have five entrepreneurs without a lot of experience that you invest in in the space of three or four months. There's no way you'll, you'll do them service. So I, I actually look for a mix of entrepreneurs, and I make sure that at any one point in time, I only have one that doesn't have a lot of experience. Uh, and that has to be a pretty special entrepreneur where I have really good chemistry with that entrepreneur, and I'm willing to put in the extra effort uh, that it's going to take, um, you know, to, to take that company to the next step. And then you find other mentors in the angel group who can spend more time with that particular company as well. 
Yeah, in, in general, I find that the failure mode I try to avoid most is um, codependencies. If the, if, if, if the entrepreneur can't live without me, uh, chances are it's, it's not a good investment for me. Uh, I'd, I'd rather help somebody run up the score mm -hmm. than to figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, at, at the same time, the, the corollary to that is never invest in your own vision. So you see a company and the entrepreneur thinks it's one thing and you think, gosh, if I was running it, I, mm -hmm. I'd make it into something different and cooler. Uh, in, in the end, they're going to do what their vision is. And so you, you've got to get really comfortable with that. And um, be in a position to help be a multiplier effect on that rather than a cause of it. Well, you talked about having a portfolio of, of experience of the entrepreneurs, you know, some who are, who are sort of raw and some who are really experienced. Do you have other uh, approaches in terms of building the portfolio in terms of technology or the amount of money that they need? I mean, how do you build a portfolio of, uh, of investments? Well, I know that I'm very focused on... Uh, internet market segments that, in, that include video. I think the monetization of video on the internet is a multi-billion dollar opportunity that's growing at thousands of percent a year. Um, I still think it's very early days for search. Um, there's there's going to be lots of advancement in search technology. Uh, behavioral targeting, um, so delivering better advertising results to people while they're searching is a huge uh, uh, market segment. And then I also like the gaming, the gaming segment. So if an entrepreneur comes to me and it's one of those four segments, automatically, you know, it goes way up the Richter scale. Then, you know, we read the executive summary, see if we like that. Then we have a phone conversation and then we have a meeting. So the face-to-face -face meetings get more and more rare because the amount of deal flow is so high. I see five new deals a day. You can imagine I have to reject three a day or there's no way of keeping up. So two a day kind of go down the assembly line. Um, and by the time we set up a meeting with the company, you know, we're pretty impressed already with, with what we see. So I just follow up, what's the attrition rate? How, I mean, you, I, I want to hear the, the, the funnel. How many do you get? How many do you read? How many do you see? How many do you fund? How many are successful? So. <laughs> okay, come on. Inquiring minds so, want to know. So we see five a day. And I have, I have another fund, an angel fund like Mike's, that helps me called Baseline. So please don't think that I do all this myself. Baseline has three people who basically rely and process all my deal flow because it's so massive. Because I've invested in 500 companies, think about 500 companies. You have five people on the management team, five people on the board of directors. That's 10 people per company times 500. There's 5,000 people in Silicon Valley who, when they go to start a company, they go, oh, why don't we go back to the guy that <laughs> did our last one? And so that's why the deal flow is so massive. My deal flow is actually very high quality. These are all people I know. I, I triage the deal source right away. Hey, that's a, you know, when Mark Andreessen sends me a deal, which he does like once a month, that's a high quality deal because he's, it's already passed his screen. He wants to see if I want to co-invest with him. Um, so, but back to the question. Five, so five a day are coming in. We try and get rid of two and a half to three right at the get-go. 
and then the other two to three will go on this assembly line where myself and the baseline folks will evaluate the executive summary. That's why you have to have a great executive summary with a great uh, elevator pitch. You know, if you can't communicate via writing exactly what this company is doing, you're, you're not going to get through the system. So if we like the elevator pitch, um, you know, we'll kind of vote on that. One of the folks from Baseline or myself will call the entrepreneur, chat about the company. We'll probably be doing a couple of backdoor references. I'm huge on backdoor references. Oh, this guy came out of Yahoo. I'm going to go call some of my buddies at Yahoo and see if this person is well-respected. We do all that in the background. Um, and then if it passes that stage, then we'll take a meeting uh, and then we'll invest. So, but, so let's say we do one investment a month. So five times 30, we see 150 deals a month. One gets a check written. So that's kind of the, the funnel. Um, Right now, in the last two years, I've invested in 125 companies. Uh, there'll be two, two or three rock stars in there. Facebook's definitely going to be one. Uh, Dig would be another one. That's one that Mike and I are in together. Um, but basically, a third, a third, a third. A third of the companies are going out of business. You know, when you start a company, understand a third of them go out of business. I do not get upset when companies go out of business. I feel sorry for the entrepreneur. I hope they learn from their mistakes. But it is a fact of life. This is a risky business. And then a third of them usually return the money back. So I had an entrepreneur yesterday saying, oh, this is awful. I'm, I'm going to sell my company. I'm only going to give the investors their money back. I said, well, what are you talking about? You're already above the law of averages. You're in the second quartile of success. Um, and then about a third of the companies will return three to five to 10x your money back. Those, that top third pays for the other two thirds. So lots of mistakes get made in venture. That's what, that's what it's all about. It's about taking risk. But in the end, you know, that top third, if you have one hit, it's definitely a hits business. If you have one hit per investment cycle, and I've been very fortunate to have one hit per cycle, it pays for the entire rest of the portfolio. So you're really, you, you really are looking for the hits. So would you invest in someone who had a failure who comes back to you again? Of course. Yeah, I had, I had um, a recent forward fumble in that regard. So uh, the first investment I ever made when I moved out here was in a company called Odeo which is a podcasting company started by Evan Williams, uh, who had formerly started Blogger. And I thought, podcasting's going to be huge. Evan Williams is awesome. I'm going to fund this company. So uh, the week after we fund it, Apple announces podcasting on iTunes. And we're like, oh, that's, that's not a good start. And so uh, about six to nine months later, Evan says, hey, look, uh, we don't have a real business here, uh, and I'm just going to give you your money back. And I, and I said, look, I, I sort of know how the rules work. If, if you invest, it doesn't work out. I don't get my money back. That's how it goes. He goes, no, uh, I, you know, I think I raised too much. I'm, I'm going to give you 100% of your money back. So I said, hey, well, that's, that's just an amazing gesture, right? And so, so I said, I'll tell you what, um, I, I don't want your money back. Just whatever you do next, I don't care what it is. Just put, put, it, put it in that. And he goes, well, I got this side project that I'm excited about called Twitter, 
And so, uh, and so I said, well, okay, what, you know, Twitter, that sounds good. So, uh, you know, when, when you decide you're going to raise money for Twitter, you know, I'm, I'm in, right? I just want to put the same amount in. Uh, I mean, that's, that's probably also a good lesson about just having things work out on good terms regardless, right? You, it, it's, it's not the entrepreneur that failed. It's, it's the business that failed, right? And, you, and in life, you win some, you lose some. And, uh, you know, the, the, the trick is to, is to fail aggressively or fail, you know, gracefully mm-hmm. and sometimes even aggressively, right, if the, if the idea isn't working. Uh, and, to, and to not have everybody take it personally, uh, you know, not leave any regrets on the playing field. But, you know, not everything is going to work in life. Now, some companies do fail because the entrepreneur got bullheaded, uh, didn't take the M&A offer, three months later ran out of money, the company goes out of business. That's an entrepreneur I will not invest in again. So, but from investing in entrepreneurs like that, you try and learn your lessons, and I try and pick entrepreneurs now that I have really good chemistry with and who are very, very flexible, who understand that their business is going to morph and be completely different from what they talked and were so passionate about in the first meeting. Um, the entrepreneurs that fail are usually the ones that don't understand that the business is supposed to morph. You're supposed to admit that, hey, that didn't work. Let's go change it. Let's adjust the business and find you know, a market that, that's receptive to the product. Um, and so that, you know, those are the key, key traits that, that are so important. So how long do you give? A venture. I mean, let's sort of say you've given us all money. All of us in this room have, have come to you with an idea, and we've, and we've got some skin in the game. We've done have a prototype. We've got some customers. You guys get together and give us some money. How long a runway do you give us? I mean, do you give us enough money burn rate for the next six months, the next year? At what point do you evaluate again? Maybe you could kind of walk us through that. Well, I wish I, wish I had a really good answer to that because um, – Originally, the way I approached it was whenever I back a company, it starts out as a B. So everybody in the portfolio gets a B grade. And in order to be an A, you have to do something spectacular, unexpected. Uh, And in order to get a C, you have to basically repeatedly screw up. And so so I thought, okay, well, I'll always know who the A, Bs, and Cs are. So when it's time to follow on, if somebody's a C, uh, then I really need to ask myself the hard question, why... Why do I want to double down on this losing thing? Why shouldn't I be helping the A players run up the yeah. score? And so, um, but some companies, what I've learned is that if you keep your burn low, and I think that this is a really important lesson, not just about financing, but just in general, companies that have low burn rates buy themselves hugely better probabilities of getting lucky over time. And so there have been companies I've invested in where it seemed like we were going out of business in a month. And just because we, ha- we were on such a low burn rate, we could try a lot of different things. And then, lo and behold, one of them starts working. And you look at each other like, oh, my God, it's working. And, hey, let's do more of that. And then all of a sudden, it goes from being a C to an A in the portfolio. And there's and so, dollars coming in. Yeah, and you're like, oh, my gosh, we've, we've got, like, profits and a business model. And the customers are growing and the VCs are calling and everything. So it's, uh, one of the things I've, I've learned is, you, you, and this is what's so hard, is you, you've, you've got to be willing to not be too formulaic about when did you turn over another card. Mm-hmm. You've, got, you've got to be willing to really talk to people that you trust and, and get their sense of perspective about is it, is it time to give up or is it time to be persistent. But I, I don't think there's any rule other than keep the burn low. 
But a million bucks better last over a year, roughly. But what Mike is saying, the lower the burn rate, the better. Uh, if you start with three people at the end of year one, it shouldn't be more than five or six. You know, that's plenty. Companies are the most productive when they're less than 10 people. You know, it's when you get over 10 people that, you know, people start looking over their shoulder. They're just not as productive. And so with that first million bucks, you want to have lean and mean, you know, six people or so, and, and everybody works their ass off, and everybody accomplishes a lot for the company. Great. So did you want to... Well, yeah, and there, there is one observation that I think complements low burn rates, and that is um, ha having a customer development strategy in addition to a product development strategy. And so most, most companies in Silicon Valley, when you ask them what their milestones are, they describe an engineering project. So it's alpha, beta, limited availability, first customership, general availability. Uh, there's, a, there's a really good book uh, written by uh, Steve Blank, who started a company called Epiphany, uh, called The Four Steps to the Epiphany. And the basic thesis of the book is that um, companies should do customer development in parallel with product development. And that like at product development milestones, you have customer development milestones around customer discovery, validation, creation, and company scaling. And the companies that, that pursue the path of low-burn experimentation dramatically help the probabilities in their favor. And in this world of the LAMP stack, offshore labor, search engine marketing, um, there are reasons to be very optimistic that the cost of experimentation is asymptotically approaching zero. And in a, in a world where you can experiment for near zero, you see companies like Slide releasing their product six times a day. You know, that's, that's the brave new world of entrepreneurship. Low burn experimentation done a lot you know, find out the winning answers, discard the losing answers, but don't scale until you know it works. You know, d discover the, the, the business before you scale the business. So let's talk about the transition from angel investing to VC, right? That's got to be an interesting transition point. Um, I have a couple of questions related to this. One having to do with, um, do you ever have a situation where you get to the end and you think it's a go, but you have difficult time getting that follow-on investing from VCs? Or does it feel like once you're ready to you know, push this off a cliff that there's definitely a parachute there to you know, take it off or a rocket ship? Well, we have uh, an email that we send to an exclusive list of all of our VC friends. So it's not a blanket mailing. It's VCs that I've had relationships with for 20 years. And we send them an email every six weeks. Uh, one's going out tonight. Um, and we show them the companies in our portfolio that are entering a funding cycle in the next 30 days. So all the VCs scan that list and they send us an email saying, hey, introduce me to these three companies. There's probably 15 companies in the 30-day bucket uh, in this email. It's the longest list we've ever had. And then we also tell the VCs, here's the companies who are going to be looking for funding in 60 to 90 days. If you want to look out to next quarter, here's the companies that we know are going to be in a funding cycle. Our CEOs give us all this data. So we start telegraphing before the company is going to go out for funding 
to all of our VC friends, which is at least 50 VC firms, you know, multiple partners per firm, and we, we telegraph that. We also go visit them all once a quarter and physically walk through and describe every company. Part of the responsibility of the angel, especially if they want to get any ROI, is to get that VC round or the next round done. So in some cases now, it's, it's the minority. In some cases, the angels all get together and say, let's us put in some more money. But most of the time, you know, after a year and, the, you know, you've got, you know, 400000 in the bank, you want to start visiting VCs because it's going to take four months to get a term sheet, you know, and, you know, almost six months before you get the check from the VC. There, um, what, what I'm about to say may, may be misinterpreted, be somewhat controversial, but uh, here goes. So um, fundamentally, I think great companies or the great entrepreneurs who've, who've delivered on milestones have no trouble raising money. And so, you know, there are the occasional situations where you, you have the speed bump and the angels need to come in. But, but fundamentally, we try really hard to help entrepreneurs get the discipline of, Prove something dramatic when you still have less left six months left of cash, because if you've if you've accomplished something really impressive, and you still have six months left of cash, you're you're sending a very strong signal to the VCs that you're a company and an entrepreneur of strength, and the best the best VCs want to work with those companies. You know the, the ones who go after the distressed companies, they're 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 at best in the muddy middle of the bell curve, uh, and they they almost never really make any money. And so, so to me, that's the way to signal the very best VCs. And um, in the end, you know, I've, I've been very lucky with the, the companies and, and the, the, the follow-on rounds that they've had, and they've worked with some of the very best venture firms. But I don't, I don't give myself any credit for that. You know, I know, I know the VCs, but I know that in the end, they're, they're evaluating the companies. And if, if, if the company can't stand on its own, there's not much I can do to save them. You know, they've, they, in, in the end... That's what they're buying, and that's what they're investing but, in. By the way, we get a lot of referrals from the VC firms yep. of companies that are so early stage that they'd rather the angels cultivate the company and then bring the company back to them you know, in a year. Interesting. There's now, a lot of that that goes on. So one of the things that keeps bubbling around in my brain as you're talking is this incredibly rich ecosystem that we have here where we've got the successful entrepreneurs with a great track record. We've got the angel investors. We have the VCs. We've got this, of course, we've got these talented uh, students coming out of Stanford who are feeding these companies. Uh, are there, is there any other place in the world that has this type of ecosystem? And can it be replicated? Not even close. I'm really opinionated on this topic because we have like five investments in New York that they're great companies, but they're, they're more work than, you know, three companies in Silicon Valley because the ecosystem is not there. Uh, the cost of, you know, the cost of living here is awful. It's worse in New York. We cannot find CEOs who will work for less than 300000 a year. That's terrible. You know, the most a CEO should make in a startup is 100 k So the ecosystem in Silicon Valley is so powerful, no one is going to come near us as far as I can see. I mean, these relationships where you have the lawyers, the attorneys, the bankers to give, you know, venture loans, 
the angels, it goes on and on and on. Just the attitude, the can-do attitude of Silicon Valley. It, it's nowhere close anywhere else. And every time I invest, even in LA, we have all kinds of problems where I say to the entrepreneur, if you just move to Silicon Valley, all this will be solved. Yeah, and, and that's, that's actually borne out by the facts. So I was, I was talking not long ago to, a, to somebody who invests in VC funds, and they've, they've invested in hundreds of them over the last 30 years. And I said, well, what, what's the one thing you've learned? He said, um, draw a 25-mile radius around Stanford University, and 75% of all returns in the venture business have come from there. And that, I mean, that is a statistic, right? I mean, that's just, that's an incredibly powerful argument about just the power of Silicon Valley and the ecosystem. And, and somewhere on the order of 90% plus have come from that plus 10-mile radius around Route 128 in Boston. So, so, so can yeah. you be in a situation where there are too many resources? Can there be too much money chasing deals? No way. There can't be. <laughs> then there's more, no, there's more competition and the, the entrepreneur wins in that situation. The more choices entrepreneurs have, the better the ecosystem is. That's why Silicon Valley is so great. If I say no to an entrepreneur, the great news is there's another angel down the street that hopefully will do that deal. My goal is that every entrepreneur gets funded because I think there aren't enough entrepreneurs. The more entrepreneurs the more Silicon Valley will thrive. I'm very biased. So you don't it. think that there can be that there's a right balance well, between well, deals and money? Well, I think that there's there's a risk that some companies get overfunded because there's there's a lot of the the venture firms have a lot of money right now. They've gone off and raised huge funds, and um, I I believe that too much money in a startup is not only unnecessary; it's actually toxic. It causes you to pursue losing strategies for too long to the detriment of the winning strategies. And that, that actually, just like we talked about the statistic about the radius around Silicon Valley and Boston, if you look at all the truly great startups that have come out of Silicon Valley, they've been hyper-frugal. Cisco, Google in the early days, Yahoo in the early days, Microsoft. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. I think that there is an inverse correlation between the amount of money an entrepreneur requires and the potential chaotic success of a startup. So I think that it's great that we have a richly developed ecosystem and that entrepreneurs have tons of opportunities, but it's like anything in life with infinite choice, you've got to choose wisely. And if you choose to take too much money, you'll have three bin copy machines when one bin would do or maybe not even having a copy machine. Uh, you'll go hire goofy positions and VPs that don't do anything and go off on wacky initiatives uh, that, that seem sexy but that don't generate anything. And so, you know, it's incumbent on the successful entrepreneur to have your own internal voice that, that keeps you from, uh, you know, accepting the lack of discipline that can often be foisted on you by somebody who wants to give you more money than you need. You know, we have a lot of listeners to our podcast all over the world who are not in Silicon Valley. And if they want Get wanted, on the plane. <laughs> Get on the plane. Yeah, I did what he said. <laughs> but, but Look at Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a guy who is sitting at Harvard... Facebook would still be successful today if he stayed at Harvard. There's no doubt about that, in my mind. He, but he had the sense to come out here and, and drag four of his roommates with him 
um, because he knew out here he would find more engineers, more biz dev people, and be able to build the ecosystem for Facebook faster. But let's imagine, let's let's imagine that everybody can't go on a, get on a plane and come to Silicon Valley. Don't start a company. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's imagine that you're in Latin America or you're in Asia or you're in Europe and you say, I want to create a rich entrepreneurial environment. What would be the three things you would recommend? I mean, there's something you say, I want to at least try. Do you, do you say set up an incubator? Do you say uh, make sure that you bring in a bunch of investors? I mean, what would be the thing that you would recommend? Well, there are some good VCs in Europe. <laughs> so, I mean, if it was an entrepreneur who said, I'm not moving. Skype, Skype didn't do too bad either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but Skype was funded by Silicon DFJ, Valley. Right? Yeah. But the Skype guys have act the Skype guys have actually founded uh, a VC firm called Atomico in England, which if it was an entrepreneur who wouldn't relocate, I'd say go talk to Atomico, go talk to Balderton Capital, which is some former benchmark guys who I think really add value for entrepreneurs. Dan Danny Reimer at Index. Danny Reimer at Index yeah. Ventures is good. So yes, the there's an ecosystem in Europe, but it's tiny compared to what we have. To Silicon Valley, and you don't, you have lawyers who screw up all the docs. Um, you, the people just don't know the way these companies work, how they should be formed. So it's a special language. It's a special. And, and the other thing is, that yeah. part part of the advantage that I think Silicon Valley's built over time, and this is coming from a guy who moved here. I moved here from Austin for this reason, but. Um, the very best entrepreneurs in the world make enormous sacrifices to come here and build just awesome companies. And so if you think about some of the best companies in Silicon Valley that have ever been built, they weren't built by native Californians. You know, Silicon Valley isn't so much of a place. It's, a, it's an idea about what's possible and, and what kind of companies can be built. And people who gravitate to that, that set of ideas and that way of thinking and that culture locate here because that's... Because in a hyper, brutally, savagely competitive world of startups, every advantage counts. And, and there's just, all the lights are green here when they're yellow or red in other places. Okay, so let's switch gears. Uh, and I'm going to ask just a couple more questions, then I'm going to open up to the audience and uh, see what questions they have. Um, let's imagine that uh, we all uh, had one big, huge hit on our venture that we came to you with, and now we've got our pockets full of cash, and we've decided that we be, want to become angel investors. What would we do to become good angel investors? It certainly doesn't just require the ability to write a check. Uh, what are the skills that are needed, and if I wanted to do it, you know, what would you teach me? Well, hopefully build a Rolodex where, or have a Rolodex. Have a Rolodex or build a Rolodex that when the entrepreneur needs engineering help, you know where to direct that entrepreneur to find engineering help. You know, where to find business development help, uh, where to find recruiters. Uh, we just developed a whole roster of preferred service firms that we share with all of our entrepreneurs. Um, having those resources and knowing who to call is what's Crucial. So if I was starting to angel invest, I would figure out, I'd pick a market segment, just one market segment, and say, you know, I want to go invest in five video companies. I'm going to get really good at video so I can help each of these entrepreneurs 
develop a good video product. So uh, I would I would invest in an area where I had some expertise, where I could add value. Interesting. So again, it's all about the network. Well, and I, I found it was really open, and I mean, I, I owe Ron a huge debt of gratitude for this. I remember taking you to the Oasis one time when we first met, and I just said, look, I just want to get involved in investing in startups, and I'll help any way I can. Just give me a chance. And so uh, it turned out I was excited about a company called Dig, and Ron was meeting with him, and he said, well, why don't you just come with me? And so just a, an incredible gesture. Um, and, and after that, I didn't really, I tried not to be just a taker. I, after that, I introduced Ron to um, RockU and Aggregate Knowledge. And so the way I looked at it was um, I was just going to try to help any way I could, add value any way I could. I wasn't going to go in and say, hey, let me in in the club or any of that stuff. It was more, hey, just give me a chance, uh, just one chance to add value, right? And, and so... Um, I found that it's an incredibly open group of people, and as long as they think you're not just a free rider trying to leech off of everything, that people want to work together. We're all sort of on the same team, fighting the same fights. You know, as long as you add value. I mean, Mike immediately started adding value at Dig. So Kevin Rose started to say, hey, that's a great guy you introduced me to. You know, it is about adding tangible value after you write the check. Very interesting. So I'm going to open it up. Now here's a little word of advice. We don't have any microphones in the audience, so when you ask a question, please try to ask it really as short a question as possible because I'm going to repeat it so that our uh, podcast audience will hear it. So first question. Mike, you mentioned that taking angel funding might give you a broader range of exit options. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? So the question was, getting angel money gives you a broader range of exit options. Okay. What are they? Yeah, and so, and, and anybody who's interested, that I, well, I may regret saying this, but anybody who's interested, send me an email to mike at maples.net. Um, I've, I've got some analysis on this. But um, I don't look at exit as a number. I look at it as a probability distribution curve. And so whenever, I raise, whenever I'm a, an entrepreneur and I raise money, there's a set of expectations I'm creating. So if I raise $5 million from a VC, the option to exit for $100 million or less is no longer available to me as an entrepreneur. So what I like to say to an entrepreneur is, let's go for the billion-dollar exit. But before we go raise $5 million, this is really uncertain. We don't really know what's going to happen. Let's raise more like a million. And, and after, after 12 months, 18 months, we'll know if we want to go for the huge outcome. Or maybe we'll have a little bit more information about... Uh, a, a, a less attractive but still realistic exit. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs like to raise money in such a way that they're always maximizing the width and attractiveness of that probability distribution curve. And so, um, so that's, that, that's really the, the, the type of fundraising that I advocate. And, and we call that the dual-track financing model. Uh, you know, we're, we're not saying that there's one predestined answer we're saying that we're trying to, to improve the probabilities and the randomness to our advantage rather than be victims of it. Great. Yeah. Is there a temptation to raise a venture fund? Is there a temptation to raise a venture fund? I did that once. <laughs> so I have no temptation to raise a venture fund. <laughs> I, I ra so I did a ton of angel investing uh, in the early 90s till 90. 899 I probably invested myself 
in a hundred companies with Ben Rosen, who was then the chairman of Compaq, even though he lived in New York, he loved investing out here. He has since retired. And that segued into starting two funds called Angel Investors LP, where we were managing like close to $200 million. Um, and I, it, it didn't take me long to realize I didn't like managing other people's money. Even though our investors were great people, we never had any major conflict. I said, you know, I don't want to uh, invest for other people. I'd rather just invest on my own account. So it's, I think a lot of it's personal preference. I don't want to be a fiduciary. Part of it also is when you're a fiduciary and the company s starts to go south in your portfolio, when you're a fiduciary, you have a duty, if that company has $2 million in the bank, to go get your $2 million out or make sure that $2 million is spent wisely when the company's on a downhill. When you're not a fiduciary like I am, I can say that company's on the downhill. I don't have to go to the entrepreneur and tell them I want my money back. I can just put it in the bottom third where I know it's going to end up and move on. So I'm actually a lot more productive because I'm not a fiduciary. Um, Very interesting. So that's why I went back to angel investing in 2005. Juliet? Yeah. I, um, I Do you want to repeat I think, it? Yeah, so if I understood the question, it's, you know, angels evaluate entrepreneurs. Should entrepreneurs evaluate angels, and do we encourage that? And I would say I would, say I would encourage more of it. Uh, one of the um, – who you choose to trust is one of the most important things to do well in your career, whether you're an entrepreneur or anything else. And it's amazing to me how many entrepreneurs – they, they get caught up in the valuation and how fast they can get the round closed and, and a bunch of things that have nothing to do with, okay, I'm going to be in the foxhole with this person for the next five years and bullets are going to be flying in all directions. What's that going to be like when we have our first near-death experience? And so um, I would highly encourage entrepreneurs to, to really reference check in a lot of depth their, their angel investors. Uh, in, in fact, it's unsophisticated not to. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But you are asking someone for money. But while you're asking them for money, and I can always tell the entrepreneur that's doing this, you can ask good questions to find out about the angel without insulting the angel or making the angel think that they're getting interviewed. But you should absolutely find out what you know if you think you have good chemistry with the angel because as soon as things get rocky you want that angel to be in the foxhole with you and you should always be judging the chemistry that you have you know with with your investor great juliet So the question is, would you consider investing in energy knowing that that's something that requires a much larger capital investment? Uh, I, well, I, I understand that a lot of um, uh, 
clean tech investments so far have, have, have not been of a capital efficient variety. Um, but, but I don't believe that's going to be the case 100% of the time. And, and so I'm doing some proactive work right now. Um, I, I can't talk about all the details, but that, that has to do exclusively with finding truly disruptive ideas. I, I think that if, if an idea is truly disruptive, it is always capital efficient. Uh, there's nothing wrong with non-disruptive ideas. It's just that they're, they're more like big R&D projects that aren't, that aren't lighting a forest fire with just one match. And, and I have to base my business on, let's light a forest fire with just one match. Uh, I do believe that there will be clean tech opportunities where those, those criteria can be applied. And in fact, I, I believe that that will be part of my competitive dis- differentiation is to find them. I'm getting a little worried about you're lighting forest fires, you're breaking yeah. the banks, yeah, all these bet. metaphors. Yeah, maybe I ought to stop with those. Yeah, I, don't sorry know. About that. I, I don't do yeah. any green tech at all. Uh, just the yeah. four market segments that I described, there's thousands of companies in each of those segments, and I'm having trouble with that, let alone picking up a new. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the way I like to look at it is I specialize in capital efficiency, and I think that, that capital efficiency is a religion uh, for how you can run a business. And I'm, I'm happy to look at capital efficient ideas in any market sector. Uh, you know, most people, most people focus on a sector but I, I focus on a part of the capital ecosystem that I think is underserved. Yep. Any particular advice to younger entrepreneurs? So do you have any specific advice for young entrepreneurs? Uh, it, well, if you have an idea, uh, hopefully it's an idea that is satisfying a need that you encountered yourself, the YouTube test. You know, Chad and Steve had a a problem that they couldn't quickly efficiently upload their video to the internet you know like why shouldn't that be dead simple so they went and solved that Um, so if you if you find an opportunity that you think you can solve that millions of other people probably have the same issue you probably have what we call a startup idea and what I would do is then go find two or three other co-founders. It's very interesting. There's almost no companies with a single founder. You know, and don't laugh. It was only a year ago that I realized, you know, this is pretty interesting dynamic. You know, you don't really start a company yourself. You need to go collaborate with other people. So most of our startups have two or three people. If it's one person now, I like something's weird here. Uh, but so I'd go find some other people that are of like mind who can get passionate about your idea and start developing a product. You know, if you're in the business school, go find somebody in engineering to write the code, which is the whole basis contest that happens here every year. That, that, just one other thought, and this is this is maybe even a broader broader than just entrepreneurship advice, but. Um, I've, I've told some of my friends on campus about this, that um, a, a couple months ago I was at a wedding in Arizona, and I'm walking through the airport. It's really early in the morning. And uh, the TSA guy goes to me, how are you doing? And I said, great, how are you doing? And he goes, what does it look like? I'm living the dream, right? And so, and, and uh, you know, it's sort of this epiphany came over me that, um, that you know, if you go to Stanford University, you're in the rare position of privilege that, you'll pretty much get to choose what you do in life. And, and that puts you in less than 1% of the world. 
And so, yeah, I always like to say to people like the folks in this room, you have no excuse in life not to do things that you're passionate about. You know, there, there are a lot of people who will never get to. And so if, if you're doing something that you're not passionate about, you're flunking a cosmic IQ test. And, you know, you can learn that IQ test now, or you could learn it when you're 40 and miserable in a job you don't like. But, but in the end, you know, you know what your passion is, and when people and, and forces in the world try to prevent you from pursuing it, turn off the noise and the hype and, and believe yourself, um, because so few people do. And it's just tragic. Anybody who comes out of this experience who's not doing something that they're excited about, it's a tragedy of their own making. It's just stupid. So what's the world like in 20 years? Wow. <laughs> I, I, I actually don't think about that very often. <laughs> I like to think about the next three to four years. Um, so I don't think about 20 years. But in the next three to four years, uh, the, the search that you have today on the Internet, three years from now, the search that we see today will look like it's crap. Yeah, that's the advancements I think they're going to happen in, in search. The, the other space is, you know, I internet video. You know, th there'll be half the websites will be video-only websites. You'll go through the website all with video. You know, what do you need text for? Um, the, 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 the trend that I get very excited about is... Um, just the continued inexorable trend towards capital efficiency enabled by abundance. And so when storage approaches zero, when processing power approaches zero, when everybody's on the internet, everybody has broadband, you, you get into this mode where you can run all kinds of experiments in all walks of life. And when you think about some of the big problems we have in the world, everything from uh, clean water, uh, everything from power to developing countries, all those things, when you think about the opportunity for low burn experimentation to have an impact on all of those things, uh, it could cause you to be pretty optimistic um, about, about some, some opportunities ahead. Thanks. Back there. Yeah, using dig as an example, can you talk about how to add value to a company? Question for Mike. Hmm. When you think of uh, dig as an example, how do you? Can you explain how you added value to dig? Oh, right. Can you explain how you added yeah. value to Dig? Um, well, I, and I, I don't want to claim too much credit for, for what they did because I think they've, they've done a great job and would have been just fine without me. Uh, the, the, my background is uh, more of a marketing background. And so um, I try to help companies on two dimensions of marketing. Uh, the first dimension is what I call Air Wars marketing. And Air Wars marketing is about a company's provocative point of view. Right? Is DIG going to be Mo Better slash dot, or is it going to be an important new force in citizens' journalism? Right? That's what conversation should DIG be having in the marketplace? And, and so uh, that, that's the first thing is just, you know, what, how, how do we define the discussion in, in, in our terms that make us look like a really valuable, important company that's, that's going to make a difference and set a standard in a category? And then the, the second way I try to help is um, in the customer development area. Uh, you know, what is the new math around our customer acquisition? What's going to be our timed doublings? Uh, how can we, in a bottoms-up way, figure out how to instrument our business to reduce our acquisition costs, to increase our audience and global reach? 
uh, how can we not just have it be an Excel spreadsheet, but something that gets better every month, month after month, in a systematic way. And so um, I, I try really hard to help on those two fronts. I mean, there's a lot more to building a company than that. But I, but I feel like if you, if you cornered me and asked me, what do you think you're among the best at, I think I'm, that's probably two areas I can help more than most. The question is, how do you find your passions? Well, uh, when I left, I went to San Jose State right down the road here, went to National Semiconductor, and it wasn't long before I had the startup bug, and I helped start Altos Computer Systems in the 70s. And after that, I went and acquired a company. After that, you know, then I became a full-time angel investor. So my my passion's always been about entrepreneurism, um, myself an entrepreneur, but then finding out that I actually enjoyed helping other entrepreneurs a lot more. So I actually really enjoy helping entrepreneurs and watching them progress and succeed. There's a huge amount of satisfaction in that. You know, it's not about the dollars, especially now. Uh, you know, I, I have enough money that I just like watching the entrepreneur succeed and excel. That the the amount of money that pops out at the end is is actually a lot less important. There, there, there are two techniques that I think are are pretty useful. One is what I call the coin flip, and um, the, the the way I look at it, most decisions are either fifty fifty or obvious. And if it's if it's forty nine fifty one, it almost doesn't matter what you pick. You know, just pick one and execute it with brutal precision, and you'll probably be okay. And if it's 70-30, then what are you worried about? You already know the answer. And so what I find is that when I flip a coin, if it comes up heads and I wish it came up, tail, came up tails, I turn the coin over and I just do what tails said. If it comes up heads and I say, oh, I knew all along I wanted it to be heads, then I do what heads said. But it's, it's surprising how you already know the answer, and you just need to give yourself permission to do the thing you know is the right thing. And there, there's just a lot of things in life that'll talk you out of doing what's right. And so that's the first thing. The second technique is commit yourself to doing exceptional work always and, and being around people who have that ethic. Um, and if you, if, you, if you do those two things and hang out with folks you trust, you know, odds are that you'll, you'll end up okay. You may not start Google, but you'll probably, do, you'll probably be okay. We are going to have one more question, okay? And this guy was trying to ask one. So the question is, balancing the founding team versus the idea, how important is each? Oh, in my mind, 80% is the founder team, 20% is the idea. A good idea is really a prerequisite today. So when I look at entrepreneur, when I see a company, it's the founders that I'm judging. Their personalities, their chemistry, the amount of passion, and then the chemistry I think I'm going to have with them. Will they listen? You know, will they be mentored and, 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 and help work as a team? 
Right. For me, it's an AND gate. My most important thing is actually market. Uh, you know, I think that a, a great market will, will basically pull a startup to greatness and, get, and give the startup a great range of options to even execute poorly and still come on top. I'm not saying the team doesn't matter. You know, to me, it's an AND gate. If you, don't, you don't want to say awesome market, crummy team. But if, if, if the market doesn't seem awesome, to me, that's a showstopper. I can't invest. I think that was a perfect way to stop. I, let's give them a big round of applause.